What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Three, two, one. All right. And I am definitely recording. I always have to just quadruple no, I'm double check. checking All right now, too. Yep. Still recording. <laughs> Hooray. We did it. You know what? And I'm going to use that as the intro to the show. Still recording. <laughs> Hooray. With Hal Lublin. How, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm still recording. And that's, you know, that's more than any of us can say nowadays. What is you got? You have a day job too, right? I do. I do. I write, produce, di- and direct a mobile trivia show for this for for this app. And now that's right. I remember that because of this pandemic, I'm also handling the streaming. Like I basically took everything on, and I'm doing it all one man. Like like uh, those Al Franken Weekend Update segments from uh-huh. the from the late '80s, where he's the one man uh, satellite uplink. That's me yeah, yeah. <laughs> every day. I, I tell people it's like it's like defusing a bomb for oh, for fifteen minutes five times a week. Oh geez. What's the app? It's called Swagbucks Live. Is it fun? I think it's fun. I mean, yeah. I'm a little biased. <laughs> but you know, you go on there, you want a little cash. You're like, oh, is it is it you can okay, Swagbucks, of course. You can make money. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Know. Yeah. Swagbucks is one of those uh one of those sites where you get paid for different 
stuff that you're probably already doing online somewhere. Well, that's an interesting gig. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there for, I've been at the company for almost 11 years. Wow. Yeah. And now you're the only person there because you poisoned everyone else very I poisoned slowly. Every, yeah, I took over, <laughs> you know, just slowly, bit by bit. And I was like, nope, now it's all about this app. I'm getting rid of all the stuff that makes money. I'm just going to so, give it away from this app. <laughs> I know you are a, a Philly guy because of your sports affiliations, but are you like from Philadelphia? I'm from actual proper. In fact, I may be extra Philadelphia because... I was I was born and raised in in Northeast Philadelphia, which is okay. a neighborhood that tried to secede from the rest of Philadelphia. I think in the seventies or sixties. <laughs> really? Yeah. To to become what Northeast Philly? I I guess they that's what they thought, or the Greater Northeast. Maybe they would have called themselves. That's sort of the name of the area. But it's it is separate from what you would think of as traditional Philadelphia, like the old city and Independence Hall and and yeah yeah and, uh, yeah all that the all that fun shit. stuff. All, yeah, far away from where Veteran Stadium was, which is now a parking lot. Right, they all are. Uh, yeah. I love Philly, man. It's one of my favorite towns. In fact, Philly is the last, that's the last place I've been before uh, COVID hit. Really? What were you doing Yes. There? I went and saw a concert there. My friend and I went and saw uh, a concert in D.C., Philly, and uh, New York um, for Bonnie Prince Billy, his favorite artist of mine. And we went on a little dude's trip for our birthday, which was mid-march and we got home well while we were there we were like oh like yeah we're washing our hands this is weird i think this might really be something (laughs) oh my god it's so funny the the week so so los angeles closed down on march 3rd march 19th i think monday march Mm -hmm. 19th or 18th whichever that was the week before i was supposed to travel to philadelphia I'd booked oh. two trips to Philly, one one for that for the weekend before everything shut down, and then one for two weeks after that, both coinciding with Sixers home games. Because my father's had for basketball. <laughs> for basketball, he's had season tickets. Uh, my family's had season tickets, I think, since ninety five or ninety six. Oh wow! So, I, and I'm, and now that the team is is worth coming home again to watch instead uh-huh. of just sort of seeing on TV, <laughs> they weren't when they were really bad. They weren't on TV, but. Uh, I, I was supposed to go. I I watched their last game, which was a home game against the Pistons. That uh-huh. was the night the NBA shut down. But before that, I was ready to go, and my and my father all of a sudden, who's like the least panicky person, I was talking to him on the phone. He's like, "Maybe you shouldn't come because mm-hmm. that first weekend I was just going to come in by my by myself. He wasn't even going to be there. My best friend was going to come in from New York. We were going to go together, but awesome. all of my father's events that he was traveling for got canceled. So he said, "I don't know if it's safe." Yeah. And thankfully, the day before I was supposed to leave, which was on a Thursday, American Airlines was willing to, at that point, they were like, all right, everybody's canceling their flights and we're not going to charge you anything. We'll just give you a credit. But had right. I gone, I could have still gone. Had I gone, I would have been trapped. Not, well, I would have been trapped in Philadelphia yeah. for, for the last almost year. My wife would have been here by herself, which would have been horrendous. It well, would I mean, have been probably home would have driven home or something, right? No? Driven to LA? <sighs> Maybe. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I'm I I think one of the things I've discovered in the last year is how risk averse I am. Uh, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, so no gas stations, no driving. I mean, that's a haul. I've driven from Atlanta to LA a few times. Mhm. Yeah, that was when I first moved out in 2000 I drove. It took me three and a half days. Now, why did you move out for to for the entertainment industry? Yeah, I I knew I wanted to perform. I'd known since I was a kid. 
Uh-huh. And when I got out of college, I thought, all right, I'm going to I'm gonna take a shot at this. I worked as an apprentice for a theater in Philadelphia, which was everything but acting. And it was, that oh, was really? great. Yeah. But I couldn't decide where to go after that. I thought maybe Washington, D.C. I had friends from college who had gone there and they were mm-hmm. wanted to get involved in the theater scene. I thought about going to Chicago because sure. I loved improvising and that's the mecca. I wanted to go study at actual Second yeah. City. And then another one of my best friends in the world, still one of my best friends, <clears throat> was talking to him on the phone. He said, come to L.A. and let's be movie stars. And I said, okay. <laughs> and then three months later, I was in a car driving across the deserts of, of Arizona and New Mexico to get into California. Wow. Now, did you act in high school and stuff like that? Did you do improv? Were you involved that early? I did. I did. High school was all even from junior high and then into high school was whatever the musical was fall yeah. and spring trying out for that and then in like 93 or 94 was when they started showing the british whose line is this, is it anyway uh-huh. on comedy central and then we all collectively people who were outside of the chicago area or places with really strong improv communities discovered improvisation so i wow. that i just fell in love with and i thought how can i do this and make this part of my life forever what is it you love about improv? I love the ability to create something from nothing. Mm-hmm. And the idea that anything you put forth, nothing you put forward can be wrong in right. improvising. And part of what I love about that, that I've learned to love more than anything, is the collaborative aspect of it, <laughs> is being there with someone else and knowing that whatever you do is going to be supported. And then you're there to support whatever they do. And I think that's a really good, there's so many great life lessons through improv that you can apply even if you never perform a day in your life. But to get to work that into performing as well, I think it's just made, it's been sort of the core, the, the principles and, and sort of the, the, the guiding tenets of, of improv are things that have guided me in my whole career in terms of wanting to collaborate and be a good collaborator, to listen, yeah. to have ideas and be willing to explore and, and fail well, the only experience I've ever had with it, improv is something that really just, um, it's like this weird uh, dark magic that mystifies me and thrills me um, when it's great. Like some of the some of the best fun I've ever had in, at a comedy event has been watching the best improv. Like to me, when it's when it's hitting, it's it's there's nothing like it. Um, and I've always been way too scared to try something like that. Like I can get up in front of 1400 stuff you should know listeners and perform live with Josh. And I, I literally don't get nervous at all anymore, but I've never been more scared in my life than when at Max FunCon two years ago, uh, <laughs> you and Janet and Janet Varney, Annie Savage and uh, Mark Gagliardi. I think it was just you four, right? Yeah. Uh, with your work juice improv asked me to be the storyteller. Um, and then you would uh, improv off of my story. And I've never been so scared in my life. Uh, I've never been so fulfilled and exhilarated afterward. And I just thank you so much for asking me to do that. It, it was a really big deal. And you probably didn't understand that. <laughs> no, but I, you were great. And I, I'm glad that you did it. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that just to have met you and, and become friends with you. I thought that like that was so great. But you were fantastic. I wonder... It's so interesting because you have the ability, like you said, to go out in front of in front of over a thousand people and and talk with with a sense. I mean, you know what you're talking about. 
Yeah. But also there there's a an extemporaneous part to that. Oh sure. I mean we're we're winging it the whole time, especially right. pre-show kind of comedy bit, but you know they are stuff you should know listeners and they are they want to see us. They came to see us. They love us. Um and it's the most supportive feeling that you can have as a performer. Up in front of the MaxCon uh Max FunCon people, I you know you know, I'm not much of a person there. I do. I'm a guy that does trivia with Hodgman and sort of makes side jokes to his main jokes. And, uh, (laughs) I I was scared out of my mind, you know, when I stood up in front of those, whatever, 300 people. Well, you, I wouldn't have known it. Like, I don't think I, (laughs) I don't think I really knew, or we didn't get into it as much then as we are now. And that's, I mean, it makes sense. It is different. And it's, it's, there are a lot of times that I've had improvising where the crowd is not there to, to see me or the people who I'm with. Right. And it's not fun, but it also, you know, you, there's still, I don't think many audiences, I think the fear on a performer side is that the audience is all going to be crossed arms with mm-hmm. that thought of, I'm not here to see you. I wish you were done already. <laughs> that's exactly how I felt at Max. But the, the truth is most of the time when you're in the audience, that's not uh-huh. what you're thinking at all. You're right. You're thinking it's just like the fear all right, of the performer. <laughs> yeah, like let's see what they do. But uh, yeah, the performers because you put all that pro- pressure on yourself. You know, yeah. you know what your desired outcome is. You know, with everything uh-huh. that you that you throw out there, you're, you're hoping that oh, this is going to be a laugh. Yeah. Even if you come up with it in the moment, and then when it isn't, there's a little part of you for a, for at least a moment that dies inside. Yeah. But, <laughs> but then you keep. But then you keep going, and and it's. It's no knowing even in a show where the audience comes to see you that that's going to happen a bunch of times. Just stuff. Sure. Won't, sometimes stuff doesn't hit, and that's and that's okay. Oh, totally, and especially with the stuff you should know. Audiences is like us fucking up and telling a dumb joke, or I mean, that's even better sometimes than when we're genuinely funny because we are so self-deprecating, and and that's not a bit. You know, we we genuinely will beat ourselves up in front of people. And they think it's endearing and funny and it's all a love fest. But uh, yeah, I mean, and I thank Janet too, because Janet is someone, as you know, who uh, like a lot of good things in my life and career happen because Janet has pushed me to do something that I didn't think I could do. Yeah. She's, and that's important. She's amazing. Yeah, for sure. Like put, like having somebody to help you push your boundaries and, and grow is, is a big deal. And I'm glad she was the one who brought you into work just improv right and got you of course she was you guys didn't even know me you're like i guess all right whatever can he tell the story (laughs) (laughs) we got to know each other that weekend i mean we had met a couple of times i think at uh the chateau marmont hangs at various Mm -hmm. hodgman gatherings um and i had known your work through thrilling adventure hour previous so did work juice was it kind of born out of that of the the improv yeah or or was it just uh, always there. No, we had done it a couple of times towards the end of the original Thrilling Adventure Hour run because there were enough of us in the cast that that improvised a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark and and Annie and I, Annie and I, I've I've known Annie for twenty one years. We oh, when wow. I went through Second City or twenty years when I went through Second City, she was in my class with me oh, out cool. in L A. And then great. Mark, she's fantastic. She's I call her. She's like the T one thousand. Uh-huh. <laughs> because because of the way she learns and integrates and grows like she'll tell you she can't do something and then and then two hours later she can do it 
yeah. as well as as anybody like comedically or even musically just super talented but that's amazing you know we we all came up improvising improvising together mark evan jackson seasoned improviser craig kakowski yeah you know these are those are two of the greatest improvisers on the planet so when we would go places like chicago we would we would do an improv show and then paul started to get more and more into it and then he you know he would always improvise with us as well and paul is one of the greatest comedic minds on the planet in my opinion did and, you guys know each other in Philly, by the way? It just occurred to me you're both from there. No, no. He is the neighborhood that he is from is, was the neighborhood where my mother grew up, but they were too okay. far apart in age to have known each other. And then he and I are far apart enough that we knew a couple of people in common, but mm -hmm. no way. It would have been bizarre for us to have, have crossed paths. The only time it might have happened is, I don't know if you... If you ever listened to his his Laboring Under Delusions album, where he talks about jobs he's had, uh -huh. well, he talks he talks about working at a store for those of you who are listening that don't know called Hats in the Belfry, which was a hat store on South Street. <laughs> okay. And I remember that store, and I know I was in there at least <laughs> at least once or twice. So it's it's possible we were the Did same at the same hat? time. <laughs> yeah, he might have sold uh, me a hat. <laughs> for the uh, listeners. This is Paula Tompkins, of course, former guest and. And I agree, one of the greatest uh, comedy minds out there. He's great. Love Paul. Yeah, but I, I didn't meet him until until thrilling, until the first thing. But I knew who he was because I was a uh -huh. huge Mr. Show fan. Yes, so it was a huge, like, he was there, and then Paget was there, who I knew from Friends. So, like, mm -hmm. I was starstruck immediately. Still now, is Work Juice, uh, is it, are you for the, the core four, and then it s sort of depends on how many people you include, or is it the big group? The, generally, the the improv is the four of us, and then also mm -hmm. Paul and Craig and Mark Evan Jackson. Am I forgetting someone? No, I think it's the seven of us okay. because we're the you, we're the ones who generally improvise. Yeah, okay. and we were we started doing when that show ended. We I remember talking to Janet about it at some point too. We were we were both like, I really miss. First of all, I miss everybody. We sure. all text one another. We've stayed close, but mm -hmm. we're not performing anymore. And we lo all love improvising. What if we could organize more improv shows? So yeah. then Janet and Paul got involved on the organizing side and they found us a spot that would put us sort of in residence. And uh -huh. we were performing once a month until until last year. It still shows up on my calendar uh. once a month when it's supposed <laughs> to happen. I, I refuse to delete it because I okay. at some point we're going to go back, right? I was gonna, like, is that a painful reminder or is it like make you feel good? It's. I look at it and go, oh, wow. <laughs> That's right. It would be happening right now. What was that? Three decades ago, when I saw it oh, pants. No. Yeah. <laughs> Before. You, well, at least you didn't get stuck in Philly. That's true. <laughs> it could have been. It could have been worse. And then had weirdly had your marriage annulled because of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, bad things happen in Philadelphia. <laughs> I love Philly, man. I love the Sixers too. They, I'm, a, I'm a Hawks fan, but like the yeah. Sixers were always one of those teams to me that were just easy to like. Uh, they never, I mean, you know, depending on who was good or bad back in the day, they might beat the Hawks or the Hawks might beat them. But there was it was never like a team that used to beat up on us that I had a big hatred in my heart for. I felt like I always liked Philly. I love the Iverson. I think a, a lot yeah. of these guys on this team now are just like some of the coolest, most fun players in the NBA. Yeah, there are a lot of likable guys on that team. And I like the Hawks, too. It was the same thing where we may be in the same conference, but it's not like we've ever... I, I feel like both teams weren't excellent at the same time. Yeah. And that kind of helps. But uh -huh. I think, the, yeah, the Hawks are, are a likable team. I like Trey Young a lot. Like, there's a lot of really great young talent 
there. And I think yeah. that they're, I know this season's been a struggle, but it, I, this, everything up is down I know. <laughs> this year. So I think that, I think over the next year or two, they're going to, they're going to take off. And I love the coach. We'll see. I do like the coach. Yeah. Um, so you also have your podcast. We got this with Mark and Hal, and that's with your improv buddy, Mark Gagliardi, um, who you guys actually joined me. Uh, I was going to say listeners heard it, but we never released it. I, th- I don't think we were able to record it. Uh, uh. <laughs> you, your Sketchfest appearance yeah. in our weird panel where we basically just dicked around and and <laughs> had fun. <laughs> To call that, that show loose, it was, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Mark is great. He's got, um, and I'll have Mark on here soon enough. I need to reach out to him, but he's got one of the great radio voices of all time. Yes. Um, anyone who's ever listened to your podcast where you handle small debates, like kind of fun debates, uh, a lot of times with a movie tilt, uh, mm-hmm. I looked at recent episodes and I know the movie crush fans would love it. Um, like best Disney villain sidekick (laughs) yes not disney villain that's Uh, right is it a christmas movie best chris columbus movie those are really fun topics oh we love doing those and i i have to send you the list because you're going to come on to the show at some point yeah um can't wait we'll we'll pick something out movie yeah the movie stuff is fun because i don't have to do any research on it at all i i always come into it with almost no research and mark likes to have a, a, a dictionary or it's oh, really? in front of him, whatever the topic is. Cause he just wants to feel informed if it's not something he knows inherently. But yeah, the movie yeah. stuff is so easy. The Chris Columbus is like, let's, we'll, we're going to pull up his, his IMDB, look at just the stuff he directed. And it's very clear what the answer is immediately. Uh-huh. I think when I look at it, <laughs> but it's still, he's you looking at it like, Oh, he's had a really good career. Mm hmm. And, yeah, and totally. <laughs> I don't think about it. I, you know, I don't think about him that much. I know, I know who he is, and I like a lot of his movies. But yeah, there are certain directors like that where you uh, you think, well, what did they do? And then you, because you know the name, and then you look up, and and sometimes it's like, I mean, Chris Columbus has a vibe, but sometimes the ones that always amaze me are the ones that are these directors that just kind of like these working directors that just do these sort of anything Hollywood movies. Like they're not necessarily, they don't have a style that you can call yeah. out, but they, they're like, wow, they've directed like 15 movies you've heard of over the years, but you yes. can't place a finger like, oh, this is definitely a movie directed by this person. A hundred percent. That's a, that's a really bizarre, that's gotta be a gift and a curse because obviously they're working and they're making solid films. But on the yeah. other hand, you know what a Spielberg movie is, you know exactly. what a Harold Ramis movie is, Yeah. but for this director, you know, they're the fact that they're that they kind of they're kind of anonymous they disappear into whatever their project is is great for the project but is sure. ultimately maybe kind of odd for their legacy yeah that's a good way to put it what did i mean chris columbus what all did he direct well you got uh, home alone that's well, his big course. that's his big one he did yeah, the first yeah. two harry potter movies oh really uh-huh adventures in babysitting okay he has another one in there that that is a really bizarre one. I'm looking now. Oh, Mrs. Usually... Doubtfire is a Chris Columbus movie. Oh, okay. So he gave he did one of the one of the better Robin Williams movies, and then one of the worst ones because he did Bicentennial Man. Right. He directed the screen adaptation of Rent. That's right. <laughs> yes, he did. It's that's weird. I, it, yeah, it is weird. It is really weird. 
Adventures in Babysitting. Oh, young. Oh no, young Sherlock Holmes. He he uh, wrote that. He wrote. Well, he that. wrote. Well, he wrote the fucking Goonies, Gremlins. Mm-hmm. Yep. Man, yeah, that's quite a career. And he was supposed to direct Christmas Vacation. I, the The story I have heard is he was mm-hmm. spo- John Hughes wanted him to he 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 and John Hughes had had linked up and John Hughes said I want you to direct Christmas Vacation because he wrote and it she, right Hughes? because he wrote it I, th- yeah. I think he did write it and Chevy Chase hated him and had him <laughs> fired right and and brought in somebody else I, I don't even remember who wound up directing it but at the consolation prize was uh-huh. Home Alone oh wow which, which he did him. not write. Right. It made him very rich, though. I Well, at least set him up to be very rich. Yeah. No, he didn't write it. Very, I think John Hughes wrote that, too, didn't he? I think so. Didn't he write the yeah. first one? Or he, co- or he co-wrote it. Um. Yeah. I mean, that's a. I can't wait to come on the show, man. I mean, I love the idea. It's a Max Fun podcast, and, you know, I've always supported those guys, and it's just such a quality network. And um, how long y'all been around? I mean, you've got 300-plus episodes. We started almost six years ago, and then I think three, three or four months in was when we joined Max Fun. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I encourage people to go check it out. We got this with Mark and Hal. Very fun show. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Your first pick, I feel kind of bad because your first pick, I think, was Back to the Future. My first two picks were taken. What was your second one? I'm sorry, Empire Strikes Back. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, we just recently did that. Paul Schneider did Back to the Future a couple of years ago. And that's yeah. kind of the only, I'm really loose, but kind of my only rule is not to do the same movie twice. That's even fair. though, I mean, I've had listeners say, yeah, but you get a different perspective from someone else. I'm like, yeah, but 
I don't want to sit around just repeating myself. Yeah. You know, like a dumb dumb. I mean, the conversation would be different, but you pivoted to a little movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's right. That's right. Uh, and if you'll allow me, let me tell you a little story, Hal. Please. When I was 10 years old, I went to school was kind of close to being out at the end of the year. And I went and sat down at school lunch one day. And my one of my very good friends, Ty Aiken, came and sat down at the table. There was round tables, probably about eight little dudes. And he had seen a sneak preview of a movie the night before. And he was almost hyperventilating to tell us about it. And it was literally, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was one of those memories that's just locked in my mind. He was talking about, oh my God, and there were spiders and there were snakes and there was this big rock that rolled after him. And and he had this, and he used a whip. And we were like, he used a whip? <laughs> like we had never heard anything like this. And he he kind of did that kid thing. I was It was either fourth or fifth grade where you just sort of vomit out this thing. You're so excited. And uh, he he said what it was called. And I remember thinking, what a weird title of a movie. And uh, that was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that was like the first time I heard about it. Oh, it's so, you know, that is a great first way to hear about it. My, uh, mine was a little backwards. Okay. My parents took me to see the first Indiana Jones film that I saw was Temple of Doom, which I saw in the theater. I was seven years old when it came out. So it was 84. Okay. Yeah. So you're younger than me. Yes. A, a, a little, not, not too, not too much younger than okay. you, but young enough to, I'm like a first grader younger than you enough that I okay. would have. <laughs> That I would have come to to Temple of Doom first, which I absolutely loved. It's a great movie for a seven-year-old to see. And then my father was like, well, if you like that, you're going to love Raiders of the Lost Ark, which he had on on VHS. We had some dubbed copy of it. Uh And I remember thinking every time I looked at the title before I knew what it was, that I thought it was uh, an adult film. But Uh (laughs) not an adult film. No, not an adult film. But he played it for me, and I absolutely loved it, ex- except I'm deathly afraid of spiders. Yeah. So that part still, I rewatched it just today, just to have uh-huh. it super fresh. <laughs> yeah, and that good. part, I still, I looked away. I was like, really? I know, I've seen it, I remember. <laughs> yep, Alfred Molina's covered in spiders. There's so many of them. It's a great gag. No, that got me too, man. Tarantulas yeah. used to scare the hell out of me. Ugh. Like, I'd rather have a snake wrapped around my arm than a tarantula crawling up it, like, any day 100%. Yeah. yeah, for sure. No question. That is the better choice. <laughs> We're not. That's not going to be the episode you have because we solved it here. Right. We're not going to bring Mark in for that. We figured it out. Tarantula or constrictor. <laughs> yeah. When Tote's face melts uh-huh. at the end when the arc is opened, mm-hmm. that terrified me. It was really mm-hmm. hard for me to watch for several years. How old and were you? I was seven when I saw okay. it the first time. Yeah, that's a bit young. I was a little bit young, but I, I mean, I was watching was by, yeah. <laughs> by then I had already seen National Lampoon's Vacation. Right. So it wasn't too much. I had nothing left to learn at seven years old. I only had to be frightened of things. <laughs> and it, it took me a while, probably until I was maybe 12, 13, mm-hmm. until, uh, until that was less frightening to me. Just the, yeah. It sort of wore off. And then the more, the more I watched it, because I would watch movies all... I mean, in college, instead of... I didn't go to parties, because I don't, I don't drink, never have... Uh-huh. So I didn't go to parties. I watched movies. I rented and watched movies yeah. all the time. And I would watch, that was one I, I had bought at that point. And I just watched it over and over again. And ra- like, it's so, Raiders is so clearly, 
it's such a perfect combination. You have Spielberg at the height of his powers. You yeah. have Lucas at the height of his powers doing what yeah. he does best, which is coming not up directing. with a story. <laughs> yeah. Not directing, not writing the screenplay, uh-huh. but but he can sort of blue sky this story. And then Spielberg can go and, and practically make it happen. Mm-hmm. And it's, you got Harrison Ford at the height of his powers. Got it's, Lawrence Kasdan. Lawrence Kasdan. I mean- it's yeah it's just a dream everybody on it is is a dream team player yeah and it's paced perfectly it's a two-hour movie that feels like it's 90 minutes long yeah i mean there are a lot of uh i mean when i was a kid i saw it a bunch of times i've seen this may be the most viewed movie for me i don't know maybe jaws i I would have to i'd have to see the data but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I've seen this movie over 20 something times, you know, easy. Yeah. And I bought the novelization when I was a kid and I read oh, that. Wow. I played that Atari uh, 2600 game. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I don't know if you ever had that, but it was amazing. I mean, you know, for what it was at the time. Sure. Um, and there, for me, there are a lot of like when I was watching it today, I realized how many bests there are in this movie for me personally. Like, I think it's my favorite score ever. Yes, I think it's the best opening action sequence of a movie for me. Mm-hmm. It may be the best last shot of a movie. Mm, yes, maybe the best anti-hero for me. Uh, maybe the best movie villain in Tote and sort of Belloc. Like, it's really like it's got a lot of things, and it's not just nostalgia. Like when I was, you know, I try to watch it through a more studied lens when I do these, uh, and it's. It holds up, man. I mean, it's just a really fucking good quality movie. Yeah. A, a lot of films that you revisit, especially from the 80s. I mean, as as time moves forward, films get shorter. And mm-hmm. not necessarily in terms of length, but in terms of how it, how it paces. So yeah. to watch something, you know, to watch a drama now, it's paced so much quicker. But if you watch Lilies of the Field, which is a classic movie that I love, it's mm-hmm. it's not moving fast at all. It's yeah. very intentional. It's a lot slower. But at that time, it was way faster than films that had come 10 years before it or five years before it. So that this, and maybe because it benefits from, from basically being a tribute to the serials of the 30s and 40s, right. it, it keeps that pacing. It's just a series of cliffhangers. And it and it takes yeah. you through. It's it really never, it never slows down. Even if there are the, the lulls, just help you catch your breath and give you a little bit more character development. Absolutely, I was thinking about that today. The pacing of it and the, the you know the the few quiet scenes that stand out is obviously after the big, um, the big opening sequence. You have his stuff at the college, mm-hmm. which I remember being freaked out when I was a kid, and still today when I see Indiana Jones out of his his costume and his suit <laughs> with his glasses and then seeing like I freaked out today seeing his house and seeing inside his house and I was like I forgot that we saw Indiana Jones's house in New Jersey that's right <laughs> you know I, I mean he was supposedly the characters from Princeton and yeah. the, the college is Marshall College somewhere in New Jersey but I was like Harrison Ford I mean Indiana Jones is fucking he lives in New Jersey <laughs> It's so weird. <laughs> it's Bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen, and Indiana Jones. It's those. It's those three. Those are the. That's the Holy Trinity of Jersey. 
Oh man, I was really studying his house too, like the interior. Like I was like, oh my god, I've never really like freeze framed and been like, what what's on his walls? Like what kind of candles does he have? <laughs> <laughs> and it's very sort of plain and stuff, but it's just so weird because as a kid and still today, he exists as this character who only travels the world and does this stuff. Yeah. So when you see him out of that element, it's always a little jarring, but necessary, like you said, for the plot to give a little bit, you know, there's just a couple of lines here and there. Like, you know, you remind, you sound like my mother and like these little tiny throwaway lines that just sort of hint like, uh, you know, God or whatever, if you believe in that sort of thing. Yes. Like these little things that hint is his, his, as his, is probably atheism, I guess. Yeah, or his skepticism. Everything's sure. rooted in in science, and he never believes the myth. Even, uh, even I mean, he, he can't believe the myth in Temple of Doom because it comes it canonically. It's earlier. What is it like three years before or oh four, yeah, two years it is, before or no five years? It's like 36, 33, 36, something like that. Is I think Raiders is thirty six. Then, then this is that. I think thirty-three might be Temple okay. of Doom. It's definitely it takes place. Definitely takes place before. So he shouldn't yeah, believe that. in the Sankara stones either. Uh huh. And he's yeah. and now thinking about it, that the fortune and glory version of of Indy that we get in that movie has been tamed down by time we get to Raiders, and it becomes much more of a man of silence. So maybe there was or, or man of science rather. And, and education and just preservation. Right. So maybe it's, I've never thought about this before that that film as a prequel shows us more about who he was than, yeah. than who, than how he progresses. Yeah. I don't think I even remember that taking place before. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time, but yeah, you're totally right. Uh, very interesting. Um, the other mo- you know, there are other couple of, um, kind of scenes to let you catch your breath that ended up being really impactful. One, of course, when he goes to, um, with Sala to see, uh, the guy who basically lays it all out there as far as the translating the, um, what's on the headpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really important scene. And then obviously the one on the boat, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie when, uh, he and Karen Allen finally had their kind of quiet time. There's so much humor and romance and, uh, sweetness in that scene. I just, I love it every single time. Yes. And I love that they're always in, until the end, slightly out of sync. Yes. So every time you think it's going to take, turn a certain way, they manage to, they manage to defy your expectations or upset your expectations in the best possible way. Because you don't, but the, the moment where, where they could have their huge love scene and he falls asleep in that, mm-hmm. in that boat scene, yeah. that is, <laughs> it's such a great subversion because in almost any movie you would see, you would expect them to, to be together. That's like the mid action movie thing is the two yes. heroes get together. Even yes. shark attack three Megalodon, right? <laughs> which has the greatest movie and all uh, the greatest line in all of film which has a, what? has that was, Oh, uh, it's, <laughs> this is before, this is right before the big action sequence where they go to, to blow up the giant dinosaur. Okay. It's John Barrowman who's the lead, and he uh-huh. he says to the female lead, who's played by the by an actress who is in Shark Attack One as a different character. <laughs> he says, "I should uh, I should go home and get some sleep, but I'm feeling kind of wired. What do you say I take you home and eat your pussy for you?" And then <laughs> it smash cuts to the two of them making out in a shower. Wow! Yeah! Wow! 
That's amazing. It's so, it's just, you don't, ex- you, you, I, I've seen it so many times that I've shared that clip with people just because nobody believes that could actually be true. Right. Like nobody and wrote that and an actor didn't not refuse to uh, say it. <laughs> I mean, come on. How does John Barrowman not just get asked about that at every single con he goes to to panel? Yeah. Forget Torchwood. <laughs> Tell me about Megalodon. Did you, did you argue about that line? Was it your idea? <laughs> yeah. I want to know the story there. Oh, uh, that's funny. Um, but what were you saying? I think I cut you off to get that line. Oh, uh, it's that's usually where they have the mid. Oh, that's that's where the yeah. love scene happens. But for this, it gets cut off. They're constantly right. cut off. Every time you think they're going to be safe and together, one yeah. they get separated from one another. When he when he goes to when he discovers her at the at the dig site, uh-huh. and yeah. instead of rescuing her, has to leave her there because <laughs> he's going to get great. caught. Is is a really great subversion, but also makes logical. There's yeah. There's so much to. logic in that film, but both mm-hmm. in in what he does and in every the the fight around the giant plane, just is so it's just this great like Rube Goldberg machine of thing after thing going wrong, but logically until it and just keeps turning up the heat on whatever's happening in the moment. Yeah, let's talk about that scene because, I mean, I've always loved that scene. It's one of the great sequences, but watching it today as like an adult who fully understands movie making and screenwriting, well, not fully because I can't do either well, but um, (laughs) everything, it's just like this amazing little Rube Goldberg machine that Mm -hmm. works so perfectly together and everything that happens uh, means something for the next thing. Like her, her pulling the blocks from the tires that allows the plane to start spinning. Her knocking him out with those blocks is what makes him fall on, the controls to make the plane start moving to begin with. Yep. Um, they set up the, the wrench in the propeller, you know, for what's going to happen later. Like every single little thing that happens has a logical, like you said, outcome. It's not just, it, it was just so expertly planned. I think yeah, to sit around and, and say, okay, she takes the block out. She hits the guy with the block. He falls over. Then she has to get in to the plane to try and pull him off and she gets trapped inside. Right. And then that allows her to use the bubble gun to shoot the, all the approaching troops to keep it a one-on-one fight. But at the same time, the plane is spinning and it knocks over the gas tank. Well, that's right. Because the plane is spinning from the blocks, from the guy. Mm-hmm. Now you have the, the ticking clock is added. I mean, it was a fun scene anyway. And then all of a sudden you've got the element of the gas and the fire. And, and it's just like, it's so expertly done. Like you've got yeah. this great tense scene anyway. And halfway through it, you add a ticking clock. It's so good. It's so, so great. And and I never really thought about what a weird looking plane that was literally until today. I yeah. was like, wait a minute, what a what was that? And I looked it up and you probably know this. It it was Spielberg's attempt to show this weird experimental plane that the Nazis were developing. Yeah. And it didn't have a tailpiece. It had these weird bent bird wings. Yeah. And it it never like occurred to me, sort of. like on my twenty something, twenty something viewing, I was like, "What the hell kind of plane is that?" Isn't it funny how your memory, my memory of it, was that it was a normal sort of bomber plane? I think so. And then when I saw it, I was like, "Did they? Is this a special edition that I'm watching? <laughs> Did they change?" But it makes perfect sense. I, that yeah. is a, a, like a very it's a nice little again, element. It's the brilliance of Spielberg. Is those little he he wanted those little bits of detail in there that. 
totally. even though that plane didn't exist, it makes sense that they would have the, yeah. the group of, of Nazis going after the Ark of the Covenant would have all experimental stuff. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, yeah. Like you build a plane <laughs> if you're Spielberg, yeah. I guess, sure. instead of getting an old plane. Um, and I was just reminded today of how much this movie thrilled me just beyond belief as a kid. I mean, I loved Star Wars. I still do. Loved E.T., loved all these movies from my childhood, but there was something about Indiana Jones and this adventurer that would travel the world and go in jungles and deserts. Like maybe it was a little more grounded or something, but it got me way more than Star Wars ever did. I I think that's it. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like Star Wars and E.T. are both great and it it's fun to to play in those worlds, like to pretend or imagine what it would be like to be in those worlds, but that's all you can do. It's it's a fantasy. Yeah. We're not in a at a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. We're there is no alien getting separated from the rest of his alien right. friends that we're Indiana Jones take in. is a teacher. Indiana Jones is a teacher and an archaeologist. Yeah. And and the weapons that he had were his brains and his fists and a whip. Yeah. And, and sometimes a gun. <laughs> It's easy to take that whip for granted now, but we had never seen a whip like that and used like that. I mean, it was, it was, I know it had been used in serials and stuff and like they full fully borrowed a lot of this stuff from that world uh, yeah. to be fair. But like, as far as me and a kid, I'd, I'd never seen someone use a bull whip like that. No, hundred percent. I remember getting a, a, my parents went to Texas for, for business and I had, they brought me back like a little whip, <laughs> like one of those whips you get at the airport. And I, I was I had one sure. <laughs> yeah. D- didn't you think, didn't you think at that age, like, all right, I'm, I gotta be like, if I practice with this for a week, I'll be able to swing from a tree with it. Yeah. Well, and it was, they were like four feet long, you know, I don't think mm-hmm. you could make a cracking sound with it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if you're lucky and the little red string on the end would break immediately and be gone. <laughs> You'd immediately fray it. And you're like, why does my whip say how on the handle? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's Indiana like a, Jones says how on the handle. Like a wood burning oh. kit. Did you get yeah. this at the airport? <laughs> it's just tiny the license like, plate? <laughs> yeah, it's like the little license plates. Oh, I got a Marjorie whip. They didn't even get my name. It wasn't even on the rack. Marjorie. Mm, better than nothing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um... There are also so many great character moments like Harrison Ford just uh, and I know it's his um, I know he had to reckon with Han Solo over the years and came back to love him. But he, he always loved Indiana Jones. And yeah, there are just, you know, so many little moments to give that give it flavor um, like the the little smile he gives when at the beginning when he jumps after Alfred Molina ditches him, you know, without the whip and he jumps over <laughs> and he grabs that vine and he gives that brief little grin like. Oh, thank God I've got this vine before it starts pulling out. Just those little moments, man, are so priceless. He manages to pull off a lot of cartoony reactions as Indiana Jones, but they're so worked into the character and they're so sincere. Uh-huh. He's so sincere with it that it that it absolutely were. I mean, it's it's crazy to think of how close we were to Tom Selleck as yeah. Indiana Jones. If CBS had said, Yeah, it's fine, go ahead and make this movie. Yeah. Then, who knows? I, I I mean, Tom Selleck's a fine actor, but I can't imagine just the, all the little things. I know that Harrison Ford brings to it. I think he's a really underrated actor because of the movies I think that he's so best too. known for. Yeah, 
He's so good. He doesn't even need to do something. And I think he's very good in regarding Henry. Like he's got a lot of great mm-hmm. movies that are not Indiana Jones or Han Solo. But even in those things, he's so good and so committed to to everything that he does. And that brings he brings these like real little moments. The way that Indiana Jones smirks is different than the way Han Solo smirks. There's a different meaning behind it. They're not the yeah. same character at all. And they they occupy a similar space, sort of like an adventurer, maybe a little scoundrelly. Yeah, kind of anti-hero scoundrels, but they're not the same guy at all. I totally agree. No. And there's, I think what those things do in this movie, too, is there's like, there's never a doubt in your mind that Indiana Jones is like a real guy. Um he I, and I remember being a kid like the way he runs looks like he's in pain you know he I think yes. he was in his late 30s when he made it he didn't run like a 22 year old kid you know he ran like <laughs> like my dad ran and he wore baggy pants and he was in pain a lot and yeah and uh like he was a real living breathing guy he wasn't and and I love the, the Mission Impossible movies and stuff like that but yes. when you get to that point like Ethan Hunt is just he might as well be a superhero at that point, you know? hundred percent. Yeah. There's no, it doesn't feel like there's a consequence to almost <laughs> falling off the Burj Khalifa or fighting in a sandstorm. Yeah. He's fine. No, there are no actual consequences outside of the moment of peril. Whereas yeah. this guy is banged up. He, you know, he's shot in the arm by the, by the time he gets to the end, he's not going to go fight them. So he, he grabs a bazooka yeah. <laughs> Even the way that he tries to hold them hostage is the farthest away. And that is such a great scene that I've forgotten because yeah. it tells you so much about his character that the most important thing to him in mm-hmm. the world is the preservation of history and culture because that's that's why he's an archaeologist, not so he yeah. can globetrot and find things. He doesn't do it for the adventure. He does it because he wants to preserve. He wants the, the Ark to be studied and put it in a museum. And they, yeah, they hit that on the head lot. and- yeah, that last crusade thing of that belongs in a museum. Yeah, they they hit the nail uh, they hit the nail on the head there. But that's what he's about from a very young age. That's what he's been about. That that's his that's his yeah. real passion. More important than Marion, he was willing to let her to you know he he was willing he wasn't willing to do what he needed to do to save her because his bluff got called. Right. There's no way he was going to shoot fire that rocket at the ark and destroy it. Yeah, and you know, there he and Marion's relationship came full circle throughout the, you know, even through that last really bad movie. Mm. I think in a nice way, but we should probably mention, you know, all the stuff on the internet when people started calling attention to the fact that, like, wait a minute, what happened before? She says she was a child. He says you knew what you were doing. She says you knew it. Uh, you knew it was wrong. And people did math, and they were like, was she fifteen? Was she younger? And right. you know, it got a little creepy there for a minute. Uh, I think there were some leaked notes from the original meetings where George Lucas said, like, what if she was like 11? That would be pretty wild. But like, you know, <laughs> that would really raise some stakes. And I think they were like, well, let's make her more like 15. That's still, you know, yeah. granted it's in the 30s. So it's a little bit of a different thing, but it's still a kid, you know, I, in my mind, I had always thought like maybe she was 17, 18 and he was a little bit younger. But I think she was supposed to be 15. He was supposed to be 25. Yeah, that's 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 uh, pretty creepy. <laughs> it's pretty creepy, but, you know, I, I, it's something that we should mention. I don't want to just, like, skate by it. For sure. It doesn't, for like, sure. take the movie for me. They ended up, like, getting married and having... They got married 
right? Isn't that the indication in the last movie? I think they. I think you get to see their wedding. I think they emerge from the church, don't they? Maybe, man. I'd literally oh, wipe no. that movie from my memory bank. I know. It was I so saw disappointing. It once. You know, we were talking about how great the the fight around the plane is, and then the chase through the marketplace mm, where oh, he yeah. where he shoots the swordsman because Harrison Ford had the trots, like yeah. all that. <laughs> all, all that stuff is so great. And then when you look at the central action piece in the jungle in in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is I've. I only watched it once, but I remember Same sitting here. in the theater watching it going, this is, this is about everything mistakenly going right. Yeah. That he lands where the ants, where the bugs are in a circle so they don't hurt it. Like everything just feels too fortunate where yeah, if it was an original, of, yeah, everything yeah. has to get, has to get worse and worse and worse. And then he, he either, fig- I mean, in Temple of Doom. He doesn't really win the fight against the guy. The guy's the guy's turban gets caught in the in the conveyor belt. Yeah, that's why he wins that fight. So that's right. He it's it's luck. He chooses the wrong way when they're in the minecart. It in Crystal Skull, it feels like he would have chosen the right way on the track, and they would have gotten out. Yeah, you're totally right. I, I mean, there was so much about that movie that just landed wrong. Um, yeah, I think they're making another one, which. Um, Yes. already really nervous about but i mean if they can go out on top that would be great um because yeah. the first three were, were really really good movies you know absolutely do you are you a are you a crusade over temple of noon guy or temple do you like them in order you know i kind of always thought i was crusade over temple of doom but the more i've seen temple of doom as an adult the more i really think it's a pretty fun like just total action like i think there's a little more substance to crusade mm-hmm. oh, sure. uh, just with the relationship with his father and stuff but I, I don't know i think they're all pretty great what about you i i do i also agree that they're all pretty great i would give crusade i would put crusade above temple of doom just mm-hmm. because i think it has a lot of the same fun maybe a little bit the jokes are a little bit better yeah and and sean connery is such a great he was that was such a great addition it, Every detail, the fact that they yeah. both slept with with Allison with Elsa Schneider, yeah, all of the Grail stuff is great. It it feels like it went back close, and you have Sala, and yeah. and a weird version of Brody where he becomes that's right a fool because he's not a fool at all in Raiders. No, no, that's right, he's, that's right. He's almost Indiana. It seems like he and Indy are basically partners. Yeah, I feel like they were just like maybe we can get some laughs out of him. For and crusade. they were right. No, yeah. they were right. <laughs> they watched Trading Places in between Raiders. <laughs> Alaska said they're like, oh, he's great at comedy. Oh, that's funny. Let's um, have him do that. Another couple of uh, favorite character moments for, for uh, Indiana were when, and they're both in the chase scene with the trucks, which is, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, I mean, it's like every action sequence in this movie is like outdoing the one before it. But yeah. um, the little look he gives when he bumps the motorcycle in the sidecar off the road it's just a little bitty the little that little smirk and then the one where the guy he's fighting uh they sort of regain control of the truck together and and kind of give each other that knowing like kind of laugh and smile before he you know kicks his ass again yes (laughs) those are such great moments in this movie yeah i also i really like the the scene in the marion's bar in nepal where where he's struggling with the with the yeah. hired goon with the gun and Tote says 
kill some both. And then they both shoot the gunman who's going to shoot them and then resume fighting. It's such a great, like, again, smart, smart Uh moment. And and not only character moment for Indy, but also for the thug. Like, he, of course, he wouldn't continue fighting. He doesn't want to die. Well, I kind of wondered today. For the first time, I was like, why didn't the guy just leave right then? Yeah. <laughs> like after he knows he's been sold out, he's like, why is he continuing this charade? I I would imagine if I had to if I had to stretch it out, it would be because he's afraid Indy's going to shoot him if he tries to go. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. That yeah. also that also has the great uh, when he's down at the bar getting choked out and he just goes whiskey yes <laughs> <laughs> so great these iconic moments yeah it's just full of them uh so have you seen the uh i didn't hear about this until recently when a movie crusher pointed it out the big bang theory thing about that he's inconsequential to the plot did you hear any of that no it was from that show which i never watched but Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene in the show is they're watching the movie and one of the characters shows it to uh, Blossom. What's a uh, Mayim Bialik? Yes. Yes. Mayim Bialik. Yeah. And she had never seen it. And afterwards she was like, oh, that was good. But like he was, he was irrelevant to the plot. And he was like, what? And she was like, everything would have happened the same way if he had never been there. And then it became this thing on the internet that I read about today where technically, <laughs> if you look at all the things that happen, they would have gone to Marion's anyway. They would have gotten the medallion anyway, and then they would not have burned the hand, and they would have known the staff was at the wrong height, and they would have dug the ark and found the ark, and they would have opened the ark and died. Uh, and I kind of never really thought about it. It's an interesting thought exercise, at least. It is an interesting thought exercise. I wonder how they get to, because the only reason they figure out the staff is the wrong height is when they go to see the old man. Right, because they have the actual headpiece, but... Tote just has the one side burned into his hand. Yeah. And it was the flip side that told them the rest of the story about the, the staff height. Right. And a hmm. deleted scene, as it turns out. Um, he, that is also where Indiana learns not to look or touch, uh, look at or touch the arc, but they cut that part out. Oh, right. It is kind of bizarre that he just sort of knows that. Although yeah. he obviously has that giant book in the beginning well, sure. that, that has the locks <laughs> on it. Is that a Bible? I think that's the Bible, Hal. No. Oh yeah, that's right. You all know in the Bible where I had a the picture book. Of, of of the of the ark destroying people with lightning. That's Romans no, twenty ten. I, I don't think it was the Bible. Uh, that's a great scene, though, man. I love that scene. I mean, that scene kind of breaks a lot of the rules of screenwriting, and that they just sort of lay it all out there. But it's just done in such a deft way. I think it doesn't even matter. Yeah, and again, that's that's the serial, right? Is we're going to give right. you all the information. And then yeah. we're just going to get to a series of cliffhanger, 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 cliffhanger. And then they, yeah. they do that. And that, but it's a, such a refined version. I think the the one they borrowed the most from is called Perils of Pauline, which is notable because it had a, a, a woman in the lead, which was uh-huh. kind of unheard of as for, from an action hero standpoint in the, in the thirties, I think was, which was when it ran, when it ran, yeah. but it was great. And it has that same excitement. You can see, you can definitely see how much they lifted specifically from from those serials, but it's so much more refined because of everybody involved. You have arguably the best composer in the history of film working with arguably one of the best directors ever, along yeah. with arguably one of the best storytellers of all time yeah. and one of the best screenwriters. I mean, it's just, yeah. again, it's it's the most refined version that, that you can get with and has everything. 
This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. It also occurred to me today that the whole message of um, his skepticism slash atheism, because there's a few lines he says about God, if you believe in that sort of thing. He talks about, you know, the magic and the hocus pocus. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he says something about, you know, what is that? The power of God or whatever. Um, But they never like he witnesses that firsthand later in the movie. And it's never I don't know. They just sort of leave it there, which I think is the thing to do rather than have him exploring that or something. Like, I don't think anyone wants to see that. Yeah, the story's not about his journey to faith. Right. <laughs> right. But it could, it could have been with the wrong director. Absolutely could have been with the wrong... That's a Chris Columbus thing to do. Right. Man, that guy would have pulled it off. <laughs> would have been real maudlin about it. But yeah, it's ultimately about the adventure, and, and he's more concerned with the preservation of history than, than anything. I mean, it blinds him to all the amazing things that are, that are possible. Even going to the, like he saw the Ark of the Covenant and, and even though his eyes were closed, when he opened his eyes, everyone was gone. Right. He heard them all screaming. <laughs> yeah. And then when they opened their eyes, they were all gone. Not a trace of anything, no cameras, not the generator. Everything got taken into the Ark. Uh-huh. And yet he has trouble wrapping his head around the idea that the Holy Grail might be real. Right. <laughs> That that is, I mean, it's just because it's all about just the print, like this is a historical artifact and I didn't see it. So anything could have happened. Right. And somehow he and Karen Allen are able to load that onto, I guess, the submarine and drive that back to the United States. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, this was everybody in that secret island base, right? Yeah. That had to be everybody. Don't overthink how they got out of there, but they just get out of there. 
Cut we to Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the great thing about these movies and those serials is you don't, you know, if you get lost in those details and you're not there to have a good time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, remember I went to see, um, oh God, what was Hard Target? You remember Hard Target? Sure. Van Damme? Van Damme. First of all, Van Damme. No, it was Van Damme. That was, okay. that was John Woo's first American film. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. And he he does all sorts of crazy shit in that movie, including standing on a on a running motorcycle and firing a gun at people accurately. I remember but that part. When when he goes to he's and he's from he's from the the bayous of Louisiana, which is why he has the accent in this film. Uh-huh. And he goes to visit the family farm, and he he goes into a shed and opens a crate. And keep in mind that there are people in this movie theater. I'm sitting there with my dad. It's two guys in front of us. They've said nothing through everything else that's happened, including mm-hmm. the time all the doves doves appear for no reason. Right. But well, he opens a crate. <laughs> exactly. He opens this crate that's had his shotgun in it for years, and he pulls out a perfectly clean shotgun. Mm-hmm. And from in front of us, we hear, "Yeah, like that shotgun would be clean." <laughs> like, oh, we, oh, did we cross the line? That was, that was the detail. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Oh, I can't suspend my disbelief anymore now. A clean shotgun? Ridiculous. Oh, <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Was this in Philly? Yeah, of course. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way that shotgun would be so clean. There's is no that, way. Is that the accent? I've always kind of wondered about it. I've heard about yeah, it. Yeah, that's that's the accent. It's very similar to Baltimore. There's a lot of O's. Uh-huh. We don't say hun. It's, uh, it's water, bagels, that's eggs. so funny, man. <laughs> attitude. My mom says eggs. That's weird. And she's from the deep South. It's there. You know, there, there, there are some, some similarities in there. Yeah. I think there's a little bit, just a little bit. That's really funny. Um, yeah. So another thing that hit me today, like now that I'm an adult and I understand how films are made, it, <laughs> it is crazy. The, uh, the digging sequences and how many people they had there and how many extras I mean, mm-hmm. it was like Lawrence of Arabia level, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people fully costumed and wardrobed in these huge <laughs> wide shots. And like, you know, today, of course, it would be so CG'd out. Yeah. Um, those snakes, like I can't imagine the Well of Soul scene today and how bad that would look with oh my phony, God. phony CG snakes everywhere doing weird things. Yeah, it's it's great that that movie was made when it was because the digital, you know, you saw with Crystal Skull in 2008, I guess that came out, that the digital stuff just didn't work. It just doesn't hit the same. The practical stuff hits hits better because it's not that kind of movie. Yeah. So you and you're used to seeing all practical stuff. And there's a lot of lens flare every time that arc gets opened or something involving the arc. Like, it's just it's like, where's that glowing light coming from? A God, I guess. <laughs> right. Or when the spirits come out and 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 you see them when when it's opened on the altar. But as weird as it looks, because it's that Ghostbuster, like kind of animated in. Yeah. <laughs> but it also fits the movie. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. I was watch- when I was watching it, I was thinking they could have cleaned this up. He could have he could have done a different version. And Lord knows I, I would bet that George Lucas wouldn't mind. Right. Going in like, yeah, we had better effects. So <laughs> right. what we wanted to do. I think it holds up pretty well, though, man. I mean, yeah, that stuff at the end is a little corny looking, but like you said, it works for the movie. But the scene where they're uh, digging and that storm is coming in, but right mm-hmm. when they get to the well of souls, I think it looks pretty good. I think it holds it up. It would look a lot better than 
I mean, less is more. It would be so overdone today, I think, with the effects. Uh, and, and, you know, yeah. you also get that, the the best shot in the movie, that iconic, like, for the next, for the rest of this episode, I could just talk about the sunset silhouette when he puts mm-hmm. on the fedora and that shot. It's just, it's iconic. It's Hollywood history right there. It's so amazing. It's so good. And you know what else is kind of an unsung hero of the movie is the matte paintings. Yeah. There are a lot of great matte paintings in that, yeah. in that movie, and you can see them, you know, if you've watched a bunch of movies and, and that you're you're kind of looking for it. Yeah. Even if you're not, if you just have come to be able to, to, to recognize those things, just to, just to see, like, oh, that's a really seamless matte painting, which... Lost Most people art. probably don't say when they see yeah. movies. <laughs> <laughs> mm, have you seen the matte painting in Raiders? Oh, it's divine. It is, though. It's so perfect. Yeah. Uh, I remember being a kid, too, and thinking how, like, how nothing phased him, but it wasn't, like, again, in an Ethan Hunt way. Like, he was never like, I've got this totally under control. He was just like, this is what I do, and I have to do it. Yes. Um, like, he's always moving forward. And not second guessing himself, even when the decisions lead him down the wrong pathway. Yeah, and what? A, and he's he is afraid for his life. Yeah. There is fear there. I mean, even that. First of all, the whole the whole opening up to the the real that entire opening not only establishes his character is really a setup for the punchline of the one thing he's afraid of is snakes. Yeah, is a is a harmless snake yeah, in the jock. front seat of his escape vehicle. <laughs> uh huh. It's such a great, that's such a great character detail. Yeah. And almost everything they set up at some point comes back. They set up so many things in that sequence that come back, including yeah. the snakes, why did it have to be snakes when he has to go down into the well of souls and the idea that Belloc is going to ta- always takes things from him uh-huh. and is always somehow one step ahead of him and outthinking him. That yeah. comes, that comes up several times, even with Marion later on when she tries to escape from the tent. By, yeah. by drinking him under the table. You know, it, well, which is also a payoff from the previous scene with her drinking abilities. Yes. Um, in the novelization, Belloc, I think, they knew each other in college and he like stole his college term paper idea or something, his dissertation. <laughs> it was, it was, it goes that far back. And um, another th- weird, I only remember a few things about the novelization, but another one was at the beginning when he says, uh, or not the beginning, when he sees the well of souls full of snakes and he goes, snakes, why did it have to be snakes? And that was it. And in the, I don't know if they shot it and cut it, but in the novelization, he was like, I could have had, you know, I can deal with spiders and I could deal with this. And he like named a bunch of stuff that he's not afraid of. Yeah. And it was just, it was too much, you know, like all you need is that perfect line. Yeah, exactly. It's a hat on a hat otherwise. But I guess the novelization is written after the movie, so that wouldn't make sense. You know, the, the only movie novelization I've ever read was was the one for 1989's Batman which I read before the movie came out did you ever did you ever read that one no that's the only the, novelization I read was Raiders there's a, there's a sequence in that novelization where where Bruce Wayne has to go chase the Joker but he doesn't have his Batman outfit so he puts on like a ski mask and then rides a horse he chases <laughs> he's like chases the Joker chases some criminals on horseback and I was so disappointed that that somehow didn't make it into the movie. I was like, when's he getting on the horse? <laughs> he just stopped that bullet with the tray. Is he going to do it now? It feels like it comes now. That would be kind of cool to, well, but in costume, it'd be cool to see Batman on a horse, I think. Yeah. Why not? Wasn't there a bat horse in the comics? Uh, oh, are you serious? 
I, there in the sixties, <laughs> in the fifties and sixties, that Silver Age, there was a bat horse, bat, bat, bat cow, everything. bat ducks. Yeah, bat everything. Uh, so let me ask you a question. In the beginning, with the idol, does he screw up by taking that sand out, thinking he was making it the right weight, or is that reading too much in it? Into I it? think, I, th- I. Here's what I think. In that, <laughs> I think if he had left the sand in the bag, it would have it would have sunk faster because it would have been too heavy. Oh, okay, I guess so. So he didn't take enough out, maybe. Maybe, or he he took a little bit too much out, so it was too light, and that was why they're like, "Oh, this weight's not right." Now we're gonna sink. If you put something heavy on it, it should sink right away, right? <laughs> I love how you just said they, and they you were know, like, they, "Wait, the- this." <laughs> Who's who's that? Who's operating this old scheme? Oh, it's the the uh, the Imagineers that, okay. that built <laughs> that built the series of traps. They're like, oh, what if we had something with sunlight? That would be good. And then you know they'll step on on the squares, and that'll trigger the darts. But for the weight, what happens if it's too light? Right. And then they that was a whole day. Yeah, and Spielberg came in and said, it doesn't fucking matter. This yeah. thing's gonna lower no matter what. I don't care. Um. I wonder where that I mean, ark of the. I was wondering today where that ark of the covenant prop ended up. Uh, it's in a it's in a movie prop house in a unmarked crate with a bunch of other unmarked crates that have other movie props in. Them. Very nice. <laughs> that could be the only place. <laughs> I just thought about something with just the the conception of it and planning of it. Have okay. You ever seen the documentary about the making of the Phantom Menace? That was on no. the, the initial DVD release. No, it's like two and a half hours long. And oh it, wow. It's kind of a hearts of darkness in some parts because you uh-huh. can tell in the editing that that they've made mistakes and that they knew that it wasn't uh, as good as they thought it could be. But there's a point where Spielberg comes to visit and Lucas is giving him a tour and they're looking at the, the Battle of Naboo like a model rendering of it. Uh-huh. And, he's, and you know, George Lucas is like, yeah, and all these people are going to come out and fight. And, and then... Uh, <laughs> Spielberg's response is war and peace, literally war and peace. And then they go back and forth <laughs> for for too long saying, it's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be great. But back and forth, like it was a Wonder Shows in segment, like back at, like just so long, <laughs> too much. Like wow. <laughs> if they hadn't had to be at work, they might still be there to this day. So awkward. Oh man, that's funny. And now I only want to hear a podcast with you as Lucas and Spielberg. <laughs> Just like over lunch or something, talking about their soup. Yeah. Mm, the soup is... Uh, it's it's ratatouille. It's literally ratatouille. <laughs> oh, man. It's so good. Um, You know, you were talking about the pace of the movie, which really, like... It kind of really picks up halfway through the film. Halfway through the film, they find the Ark of the Covenant, which is kind of weird. Like, you would think... I mean, I, I don't know if it quite qual- qualifies as a MacGuffin. Maybe it does. Yeah. Um, does it, you think? I think so. Yeah, it's the thing everybody's chasing after. But, like, it's so early. It's, like, revealed so early, and they've got it. And that's, like, when that the action is so relentless from that point forward. It's really the only downtime you have is the boat scene, you know, the love scene. Um, but, every, I mean, the, the he really puts his foot on the gas in the second half and third act of that movie. Uh, in such a way that it's just it's it, you know there's an exhilaration like this is a movie that when they have screenings people are like standing up and cheering still with yes. some of these sequences that they've seen dozens of times yeah 
I, you know, it's, it shifts. It's the, the, it's a treasure hunting movie until they find the treasure. And then it becomes a cartoon sequence of I'm running with the football and then you stiff arm me and then you grab the football and run the other way. And then I grab it and go this way. So they're still fighting over it. And we don't know. I don't think we find out until way later until we're at the base with that. He's that Belloc's intending to open it and right. film it because the the German guy's like I don't want to do this Jewish thing <laughs> and he's like oh you want to just take it to Berlin and open it up and it's empty yeah, in front yeah. of the Fuhrer and see what yeah, he thinks of it yeah we gotta sort of test it out a, a, again a logical way to manipulate the Nazis into agreeing to mm-hmm. alright we're gonna film this and send it and not only in that it, it logically not only does that give give Hitler proof but it gives them propaganda. Yeah. Because they have it filmed. That's right. Yeah, I never really thought about that. Yeah. And that that is a very key line, too, to say that he was, he wanted to test it out first, give it a test run before he brought it to Hitler. Yeah. Which <laughs> Let's also. Let's get this baby out and see what it can do. <laughs> well, a lot for this great ending and this sort of kind of, you know, it became a full on horror movie there in the last few minutes. Yes. And, um, and it also like people talk about Inglorious Bastards being this like you know one of the, this this great revisionist history uh, Jewish revenge film. I'm like yes. no, there was an actual Jewish director that made that in 1981. <laughs> it's like true. He, he got to melt and blow up the heads of Nazis. <laughs> as as someone uh, as as a Jew myself, uh, watching it, I I really indulged in that this time. Uh huh. <laughs> in that like oh. It's a it's a real feat to kill this many characters at once and not feel bad. Like you're so glad mm-hmm. to see every single person die. So when when Belloc fires the lightning or or his head energy explodes. out of his eyes and it's yeah he he kills all those people <laughs> then his head explodes. Meanwhile, the two main Nazis their faces have melted. Yeah. And they're all, and even before that, they were all terror. So they don't, they get no moment of peace before their death. It's just terror, 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 suffering, 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 death. Uh And you're like, oh, good. That's fewer Nazis. I'm so glad. So happy to see. And that's definitely a running thing for Spielberg. I also think that, uh, I also like Inglorious Bastards as a piece of, of Jewish revenge porn, but I agree that Spielberg do, it has a little bit more weight behind it with Spielberg. I think so. Yeah, I didn't remember I'll, that Belloc's head exploded until today. I kind of yeah. was just remembering everyone melting because that's such a, an iconic thing when Tote melts and the other guy melts. But he full on scanners head head explosion. Yeah, they don't they don't shy away from the blood. <laughs> no, in the movie at all. Even when in, when Indy gets shot in the arm during the during the truck chase, yeah, it yeah. splatters all over the windshield. Yeah, that fucking guy. I remember in the theater when I was a kid, like that guy's actually kind of getting the best of him. Yeah. I was like, he can't, this blonde German, like no name German's not going to get him. And then uh, I, I distinctly remember being a, 10 years old. And when he finally goes under the truck, losing my mind, I had never seen a stunt like that. It yeah. didn't occur to me as a 10 year old, like when you look closely, the truck's going like, you know, nine miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but like that that sequence blew my mind when he goes under the truck and then is dragged behind it with a whip and then gets back and does the same thing to that guy it, yeah. it's just like I remember I, I felt like my head was exploding 
it's so good. It's so amazing. And that was the stunt guy. That was his idea. Oh, was it? That he wanted to do. He's like, what, can I do this? Like, yes. I watched, I watched a, a little special on the stunts of Indiana Jones Ugh. after I watched the movie. And that was one of the things that Spielberg said. He was like, that was the stunt guy's idea. He gave us that whole sequence, which, wow. which is uh, amazing. Like they yeah, can I mean, build, build a so sequence iconic. around it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that whole chase scene was just from, from start to finish. It's just amazing. He starts out on a horse, which yep. is so cool to see him when he rides through all those people, like, you know, fucking 5,000 people and they're all cheering <laughs> him on. And, and, uh, you know, everyone's always kind of on his side in general, unless they have been co-opted by the Nazis. Like he yes. pulls, the, he pulls the truck in and somehow those people know, like, park in this garage and then we're going to immediately cover for you as if it was pre-planned. Like, don't ask any questions, <laughs> moviegoer. It's, it's so just good. a great sequence. It feels like a Sala, that's something Sala did, who we haven't sure. even talked about this whole time. Yeah, let's talk about Sala. Oh, wait, before we talk about Sala. Yes. In that scene, when when uh, he hides in the thing, I never noticed mm-hmm. this until today, and the Nazi car pulls up and they come up and they're like offering them melons in the car and the one mm. Nazi in the back gets mad and throws the melon, you hear a dog yelp. Yes. <laughs> I never noticed that today. Until today, he throws the melon out and you hear a <laughs> It's almost it's like a Wilhelm scream level, like get like audio gag. It's the Wilhelm scream for dogs. <laughs> it really is. I mean, they, I wish yeah. they had had the, that. <laughs> you yeah, know, the Wilhelm. Throw them both in there. You know, the Wilhelm scream, uh, scream is Sheb Woolley, right? Uh, I mean, I knew that at one point. Stuff you should yeah. know to get kind of a short thing on it. Yeah, that's crazy. I and it's such a great, such a great screen. I think they use it a few. I think it's used at least three or four times in Raiders. In Raiders, I didn't pick it out. It's always very subtle. There's one in the car sequence for sure. There is. Yeah, it's always such a nice little thing. That's beautiful. You know. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's very it's satisfying. Like one of my favorite things about movies. And movie history is that this this like long running joke that people throw in there. It's just it makes me smile every time. Yes, it's a high five to the audience. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, let's talk Sala. I mean, one of the great characters. One of my favorite parts of uh, is uh, that always gets me is how happy he is when he gets that little kiss from Karen Allen yes. and walks away singing that song. It's just so yeah. great. His uh, his Gilbert and Sullivan, which uh-huh. they paid off because before I think it was when they were digging. That he was he was singing it. He sings it at another point. Oh, he, that's right. Another payoff. And he really like is one of those Indiana Jones. I don't I don't agree with the with the the idea that the movie would be the exact same without him. But I do think that he would not be successful without everybody around him because he relies a lot on luck. Almost every major battle, except for what he shoots the swordsman. I mean, even the plane yeah. thing. The re, the only reason the guy. The only reason he wins the fight is the guy doesn't notice the propeller yeah. is coming towards him until it's too late. So yeah. he doesn't win Everyone's that fight. He's saving just, him. Yeah. The other one loses. Sala saves him multiple times, including oh, yeah. in the bar when he's drunk by sending all his kids in. Sends his kids in to surround him. Bad yeah. Da- bad dates. Yes. Of course. So he's such a competent. He's a, he's a good friend, a loyal friend, uh-huh. and and really, really competent. It's important that you realize that Indiana Jones has a network of people that really care about him. Yeah. And that that's what helps 
that's what helps him survive. Sal's Sal's the only reason that he's even able to find, you know, able to find and access the well of souls. Yeah, what's in it for him? I never really thought about that. What does Sala get out of this? Does he get a little piece of the action? Ultimately, I don't know. I don't know if there's a piece of the action for him to get because, well, I guess there is money. There was a money. Uh, there's a he gets uh, money for money artifacts. Reward. I would assume there's. I was. I would assume there's some money for it, but also they obviously have a long history together. If yeah. he's a digger and Indiana Jones is a is an archaeologist, like they know, the the first time he comes to him is for information on what's happening. Yeah, I don't remember. Was he in Young Indiana Jones? Why do I feel? I mean, I, I saw that I years and years ago. Young, I only watched the episode Harrison Ford was in, it, and I fast forwarded it to the part where he was in it. I taped it and then watched it later. Really? <laughs> I just wanted to see. I just wanted to see Harrison Ford. I just wanted to see bearded Indy. Oh well, make snow it was a good show, people. and it, for some reason I'm remembering a young Sala like they had always been friends or something. But I might be dreaming that up. That would make sense. I mean, Saul seems like somebody who would have been educated elsewhere. Right. So their paths could have crossed in in any number of ways. But there's beyond, obviously beyond a personal, uh, professional relationship there because of the care with which Sala hands away. He says, this is, these aren't my friends. This right. is my family. Yeah. So Indy. I'm going to know if anything happens. Like, Indy. Indy. <laughs> Asps. Very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> I love that part. Very yeah. dangerous. Like he he knows that he's very scared already. Yeah. Uh, th- th- this is also a movie too, like kind of with the stormtrooper bonking his head, like the, the, the plexiglass <laughs> that you can see in the Cobra scene. Yes. It, it's, it's great. It's like, it, I think that adds to the legend of the, these movies, you know, a little yeah, goof you, here and there is fun. A hundred percent. And you don't know, you wouldn't know if you, if you hadn't been informed that it happened after the fact, I don't think it's something that you, you you get so it's to the film's credit and to Star Wars too that it's it's a minor mess up yeah. that is easy to miss because you're so invested on in, in everything else that's happening. I never saw the Star Wars when the first twenty times I saw it. Me neither. Until the, until the internet showed me. A hundred percent. Same crazy. thing. And it's yeah, so I, obvious once you see it, you can't unsee it. You're like, how did I miss that? Yeah, but, now but like you, you look said, for it. you're so into it. Yeah. You at that point you've seen everything else that's happening in that scene. You've looked at every detail. You've yeah. looked at panels on the wall, the designs, what the floor looks, everything. So you can just concentrate on that poor guy that smacked his head into the doorframe. <laughs> um, as you get toward the end, I think there is one important shot too that's so easy to kind of forget about when it shows. It's a little bit of a you know uh, nugget for things to come is when the. Sp- God burns the swastika off of the crate. Yes. And yes. I, I never kind of really thought about that shot until today. I was like, man, that's a really, that's an important shot because basically what it's saying is God is real. There's some supernatural or whatever biblical stuff that's going to go down. And, and he, and he hates Nazis. <laughs> yes. I had that exact same thought it, that God hates Nazis and mice. Those right. two things. <laughs> can't stand them that can't stand because or in, or maybe it's order. just yeah like if i if if this nazi uh if this swastika burning is is a rock and don't come and knock it maybe they just were too close right when that energy was being released like oh oh i just meant to get the stuff on right. the outside the printed stuff did i kill my, did i do it again can we sweep them away i don't want people to think it's because of me i love all my creatures great and small right they're all mine <laughs> Oh, good. 
That's very good. Um, well, I guess let's talk about that very end. You know, it, it's sort of, I remember even being a kid and seeing the Washington scene and mm-hmm. the, and the, you know, the bureaucracy and, uh, you know, they're fools, they're fools. I remember that impacting me as a kid. Like I kind of got it. Uh, and it's something that resonates much more as an adult, I think of like, of course, this is what would happen. It's in some mm-hmm. warehouse and next to the, the Roswell aliens or whatever. Yes. The military took it. Of course, the people who said, oh, we just want to take care of it. Ultimately, people in power, when they have, when there is a, a weapon or something available, yeah. they're not going to turn it over to be studied. They're going to take it like, oh, it's ours now. So it's going to be, become property of the U.S. Army, and we're just going to yep. hide it away from when we need it. And that, that was kind of an interesting <clears throat> thing to have come back in Crystal Skull, that it starts in that warehouse, and they're looking for... Mm-hmm for uh th- that the arc is there I, that's it was kind of a neat thing i don't think it was particularly well executed yeah unfortunately but, no i'm with you but but kind of neat and it the the great part about that is the ending of the movie is that you know that's not the end of the story and so you're yeah. gonna wonder that this chapter is complete there's nothing left for him to do he's not gonna break into the warehouse and steal the arc so he can take it to a museum elsewhere in the united states right there's but, a finality to it. Yeah, there's something like, oh, this could this this could continue. Mm-hmm. Who knows what's going to happen next with that arc? Will will somebody ever find it? Is it now lost to time? Oh, is it actually? What if it was actually in a warehouse somewhere? What if this was true? I mean, I kind of when they did Crystal Skull, I remember thinking it was so poorly executed. I remember leaving and thinking they could bring back the arc. Like, I don't think that would mm-hmm. be a, a hackneyed thing to do. No. And I think Lucas and Spielberg probably do think that it would be like, we've already done that, but yeah. I'm like, I don't know, man, it's in that warehouse. Bring it back. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think they, I think in trying to shift it to something that would have been made more in the, was it the fifties? I the think 50s, so. Yeah. That, that sort of killed it. It didn't have that same spirit. It didn't have, it didn't have that serialized adventure spirit that the first three had. Cause they were trying, I think they were, yeah, they're trying to shift it to like it's a monster movie. Right. It's subtly a monster movie for the 50s about aliens, except all the alien stuff is real weird and yeah. even like the I, the Sankara stones were looked better to me. These three like carved potatoes were more interesting as an object yeah. to go after than <laughs> than what looks like something that you could get in Hot Topic. Yeah. Like, oh, this is this is something a goth kid puts on their coffee table to seem interesting. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's so good. Um, you know that last shot. Like I, again, as a kid, I remember it's it's still such one of to me one of the greatest last shots ever in movies. Is that big warehouse matte painting? Another great matte painting. Beautiful matte painting. And uh, the, this you know nameless custodian who just wheels it in there. I'm sure there are probably Easter eggs in that warehouse that I don't know about, like right. label, labeled crates that are kind of fun. I know R2-D2 and C-3PO and Leia are hieroglyphics in the Well of Souls. Yes. And that's kind of a fun little thing. But um, And again, I think C-3PO and, and R2-D2 appear again in... Yeah. In, um, in uh, oh my gosh, The Last Crusade. Oh, they do. They're also, in, when he's uh, when in Venice, I think they're there as well. Okay, that's kind of fun Something for fans, like though. And then Jaws was on the was on the Close Encounters ship. What? Stuck onto the stuck onto the mothership. Yeah, there's a Jaws in there somewhere. 
Well, how do we Bruce, know that? Rather. It's one of those just facts that comes around. No, like, but I can't verify like, this. No, you can <laughs> see it, though, on the design of the mothership. I don't know if you can see it or not or if it's just something they stuck on there for Spielberg. Okay. But apparent, that's the rumor. That's another that's great my, one. That's what I heard. <laughs> I'm going to matte paint it in if not. <laughs> I always want – I love that last scene, too, when they're, when they're talking about the um, – the arc being stuffed away or whatever, but mm-hmm. I always wanted a band uh, called Top Men, and I thought it would be one of the one of the great sort of low key <laughs> movie reference. Like very few people, few people would get that, but some yes. people would be like, "Dude, Top Men is that from Raiders? We've got Top Men on it." <laughs> All the hardcore fans wear fedoras to your shows, right? <laughs> there is, a, I do love the the, the juxtaposition of this world changing radio to God that has been relegated to a crate being pushed by, like Mm -hmm. you said, by nobody. And now it's sitting with a bunch of those boxes could have nothing inside them. It's not necessarily, you know, Mr. Megorium's wonder emporium of, (laughs) of priceless, powerful artifacts, but that that's their top men are just, they're just going to hide it away so that nobody else can have it. Yeah. But, I would love to see a series. I think an interesting series, Disney Plus, call me, is to, is <laughs> the group of scientists, the, the army people who would have had to experiment. At some point, they had to do something with it. Yeah, they're, they're not. I mean, they were trying to take ET and for the same reasons. You know, you're gonna <laughs> it's, at some point, someone's gonna poke around that arc. That's right. You know. Oh, ET. I know. Poor, poor guy. Poor, poor <laughs> ET. I'm wondering when I. You know, my daughter's five and a half, and I'm. Today I was thinking like, could she watch this with me? And I, after I watched, it, I was like, oh lord, no! Like, there's so many. I mean, she's not scared easily, and she very much gets that stuff is make believe. Right. And she's seen some stuff like that by accident when I'm playing video games, and she's like, oh, you cut that guy's head off. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. It just it felt a little too much. And I was thinking about ET too, like good movie, but it's like my wife was asking like, when do we show her that? I'm like, well, whenever we want her to see the saddest thing ever happen in a movie. I mean, that's the deal with E.T. It's just fucking heartbreaking. Yeah, let's watch an alien make a latchkey kid's life more interesting. <laughs> no, it, it, uh, I, I, went to, I was five when I went to see it because it came out in 82. I was born in 77. It came out uh-huh. in 82. And I remember walking out of the theater and telling my mom, I thought, uh, and I, I think I said out loud, like, I thought it was okay. I didn't love it. <laughs> Two stars. I was very, I was very <laughs> underwhelmed. My favorite really? part of it was that he had Star Wars figures because he had Hammerhead, uh, and I didn't have that. Uh huh. I didn't have Hammerhead. All right. But now I, I've, I've come to appreciate it a lot more. I think at uh-huh. five I wasn't ready. Yeah, probably so. I didn't. I, I, if I'd been just a little older, if I'd been closer to Elliot's age, I think I would have identified with Elliot. But I was identifying more with Drew with, Barrymore. Uh, with Drew Barrymore, yeah. <laughs> with Gertie, like Gertie's kind of cute, but I mean. Yeah, I'm five. What do I know about cute? What okay. I love the yarn in her hair. You know, a girl with yarn in her hair for five year old me, I thought was very cute. All right, dude, this is a lot of fun. I think we did it. This is a blast. Thank you uh, so much for having me on. Yeah, man, thanks for coming on, and I'm gonna hold you to uh, and hold you to it to have me on your show for sure. I will email you the list. I'll do All it. Right. Uh, I'll do it tomorrow, so you'll All have right. it. All right, thanks, buddy. I'm glad everyone. All right, uh, buddy. Listen to this and check out. Uh, where can they follow you on uh, on your socials? By the way, 
I am at Hal Lublin on Twitter. I never post on Instagram, and I'm gonna post more on TikTok. But that's pretty much where I oh. uh, who I am everywhere. So that's come nice on, tease. watch me dance while I cook <laughs> on TikTok. Woo. And listen to uh, we got this with Mark and Hal. And when things go back to normal, and if you're ever in LA, go see Work Juice Improv. It's fantastic. Please do. Please do. All right. Thanks, bud. Thank you. Movie Crush is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown, edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson, and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.